Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the August issue, Fred Bonson writes about the work of Father Columbus Stewart, a Benedictine monk who's traveled to conflict zones around the world to preserve religious texts of a variety of denominations. For his story, Bonson accompanied Stewart to the former capital of the Songhai Empire, Gao, Mali, on a particularly Indiana Jones-esque mission. However, all romanticism faded once Bonson arrived at the heavily guarded UN base where the pair would be staying. The region is a hotbed of extremist activity. Terrorists have killed and abducted locals and foreigners and destroyed ancient Islamic buildings and manuscripts they've deemed idolatrous. Bonson, who is an essayist and not a war reporter, ultimately chose to remain at the base rather than venture out with Stewart. I spoke with both Bonson and Stewart about their respective decisions, their relationship with faith, and the importance of preserving and making accessible religious writings in places under siege. So the two of you flew together to Gao near Timbuktu on separate but related missions. And Columbia, you set out to digitize and preserve ancient Islamic texts, which are at risk of being lost in a war zone. And Fred, you were reporting on Columbus Project and revisiting the place you lived, you know, or close to the place you lived as a child while your parents were away working as medical missionaries. So Columba, you have a lot of experience traveling to war zones to do this sort of work. And Fred, you mentioned in the piece that you're not a conflict reporter and you're a, quote, risk-averse writer. So how were you both feeling on the flight over? Like, could you set the scene? I'll go first. So I think as Fred points out in the article, I was kind of in my usual zen-like calm as we were flying up there. I tend to do most of my anxiety before I'm actually in a particular situation. But I also knew what to expect in terms of the flight itself, flying with the UN's World Food Program and their regular planes to these conflict areas. And I had some sense of what would be waiting on the other end in terms of staying in the UN peacekeepers camp and so on. But there were a lot of question marks about what Gao itself would be like, because it was my first time there, apart from briefly flying through the airport a couple of times. Yeah, for me, uh, I had, I remember feeling both a sense of adventure and, you know, I was really excited to be following Columba on this trip and also just a kind of um, unrelenting dread. I remember just this kind of, and this started a week or two before the trip, but just the more I began to learn about, uh, terrorist activity in the region and uh, different journalists being killed or kidnapped over the past several years in the region. And, you know, that was, it had been in the past, but several months before going there, you know, I'd learned that a French journalist had been kidnapped and he was still being held and is still being held as we speak more than a year later. So just all of that was kind of in my mind stewing, you know, as we were as we were flying over the desert. Uh, So just a a sort of mix of apprehension, but also the thrill of accompanying Columba on this really amazing trip. So the background to our work in Mali has to do with the original concern about the important manuscripts of Timbuktu, which had been a center of Islamic learning at one point when it was a, a capital of a vast West African empire. 
In 2012, there was uh, a conquest of Timbuktu by forces that are sometimes called by a shorthand Islamist, but in fact, like most things in the region, it's a very complex mixture of ethnic and uh, religious issues. So there were initial reports then that they had come into Timbuktu and destroyed these precious collections of manuscripts. And then the story later emerged that most of them had been already evacuated to Bamako, the capital of Mali, in advance of the arrival of these invaders. And we started working with the organization in Bamako that had brought them down. So we started working in a very safe part of Mali with manuscripts that had been evacuated from an area which became a war zone. And later we went back and worked in Timbuktu with libraries that were never evacuated, but simply hidden because the, the people in Mali are pretty good at hiding things from invaders. They've done this several times before. And then our, our sort of next frontier after those projects and our work in Jene, another center of Mali and Islamic culture, was to look at Gao. So that was the purpose of the trip last summer. And Fred mentions this in the piece, but you've spent a lot of your career preserving Christian and Islamic texts and, and also Buddhist and Hindu texts in war zones, or at least places that are in conflict, to use a really lousy euphemism. So how did you begin doing this work? And, and what are some of the riskiest places you visited to do this work? The background of the work that I'm involved in with the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library, or Himmel, as we call it. The origins of that were a microfilming project in the 1960s, which was started in Europe during the Cold War with monastic manuscripts in Austria, which at that time was a neutral country between NATO and the Soviet-led Warsaw Pact. And we were really worried there was going to be World War III, a nuclear conflict, and that our own Benedictine manuscript heritage in Austria would basically be vaporized. And the reason we went to Austria, it was strategic, but also it was one of the very few places in Europe where monasteries still had their manuscripts because they hadn't had a reformation, they hadn't had a French revolution and so on. So the, the project grew from there. And of course, Europe settled down uh, until recently. And so our, our work then turned in the 70s while we continued in Europe to a project in Ethiopia, which ended up taking place during their revolution and then civil war. So that kind of shifted our focus in a sense, both beyond Europe and dealing with areas which had become conflict zones. So when I became director in 2003, we had, uh, of course, just experienced the invasion of Iraq, uh, the 2003 one. And we had an invitation to do some work in Lebanon, which at that point looked very calm. And we did that. And then we started working in Syria and Southeast Turkey. And eventually we found our way to Iraq, again, thinking that things were, were peaceful, settled down. There'd been all that awful violence in the aftermath of 2003. But then, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, fate, humans, the human condition, has a way of surprising you. So we, we found ourselves working in Syria at the time their civil war started in 2011. We never expected that. We started work in Iraq in 2009 and 
We're still working there with our Iraqi partners in 2014 with the rise of ISIS or Daesh and the capture of Mosul and then all of these ancient Christian villages between Mosul and the Kurdish capital of Erbil. And so we were with them through all of that. And I was back there in 2017 when they had just liberated part of Mosul and many of those villages just to see the terrible destruction. But the point is we didn't plan to be doing all of this in conflict zones. Conflict zones have a way of erupting and they often erupt without a lot of warning. Syria being case in point, everybody told us nothing would ever happen in Syria because the Assad dictatorship was so uh, fierce. Yeah, no, I remember I was working in a newsroom at the time of the Arab Spring, and it was like, oh, yeah, this is this this will settle itself. And, you know, 11 years later, we're, you know, it's still it's still going on and there's still no real solution being proffered. But I mean, would you say somewhere like Syria is, you know, being there when things were kind of starting to kick off with the rise of ISIL, the Islamic State, was that probably like the riskiest place? I mean, again, I know you don't have to make like a top 10, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's it's so much of this, so much of Fred's pieces about this feeling of danger and trying to figure out, well, what is the level of danger that I am willing to experience? I never really felt at risk moving around the Middle East. We'll, we'll start with that. Uh, until 2017, when I went over and was with a, a CBS News crew for a 60 Minutes feature. And we actually went to the front line in Mosul. And so we had to have, you know, helmets and vests and all this kind of stuff. And that was my, my first experience of that level of security, because previously my MO was to be very low key, travel with the local. We knew where we could go, where we couldn't, and, and things were fine. Uh, Occasionally, I had to pretend to be somebody different than I am. At one point, I had to pretend to be a French Benedictine in a village which didn't like Americans. But anyway, that was almost more fun than anything else. But that experience in May of 2017 was new. And then in August of 2017, I made my first trip up to Timbuktu with my colleague Sophie, who's mentioned in Fred's piece, and our colleague Walid Murad, who's worked for Himmel for many years. And we went up to Timbuktu and had just arrived. We were having lunch at the only hotel that was still operating because it was basically in lockdown with peacekeepers. And a firefight broke out about 150 yards from where we were as a group of people came in from the desert to attack a UN communications post. So we were, we were holed up in our hotel room for eight hours while the shooting was happening around us and then the helicopters came in and it calmed down and so on and then we were evacuated from the hotel by Swedish UN peacekeepers and taken to their camp for a couple of days because the situation was so unstable that was probably the closest I've come to real trouble because the issue in in Mali is kidnapping and they like to uh, grab foreigners and then they hold them on ice for a while in the hope of getting a higher ransom. So that was that was my background. So by the time we went up to Gao last summer, 
I kind of knew what the drill would be, but also felt comfortable that the UN would really be taking care of us, that they would know the immediate situation, they would provide the security, we would be staying with them, and uh, they're, they're professionals. Yeah. And so, Fred, it's often said that journalists record the first drafts of history. So do you see your writing and reporting work in that way, even if it's not necessarily a, in a conflict zone? And I mean, uh, again, it's, uh, you know, hearing Columbus sort of uh, voice voice such certainty in the, in, you know, in the UN protecting. It's, it's, you know, why didn't you leave the base? Yeah. Yeah, I, in terms of, you know, journalists recording the first draft of history, I suppose that's true. I don't see myself in such an exalted role. Um, I, I use the, the tools and practices of journalism and, you know, um, attempt to practice those tools with the utmost rigor, but I'm, I'm really an essayist, you know, I'm really a writer and I try to send myself into places where I think I might have some kind of encounter and some kind of um, deepening of human experience that I can bring back for the reader. And, you know, that requires, of course, convincing Chris Beha to send me to places where I might have an encounter and getting people to pay me to go. Um, but I think that's my underlying um, aim in, in doing these kinds of stories. And, you know, when I visited St. John's Abbey, uh, Columbus Monastery in Minnesota, three or four months before we ended up going on this trip, we met for the first time and uh, he was showing me around the monastery. And as, as he was telling me more about his work, I was just really captivated with him as a person, with his his um, motivations for doing what he does. And I just, I saw in Columbus such a contrast of this kind of rooted stability that the Benedictine uh, tradition represents, you know, this 1600 year old tradition of joining a monastic order in which you commit your life to one place and one community. And yet he was so coming out of that kind of grounded tradition. He was going all over the world and, uh, and building trusted relationships with other monastics and with other people of other faiths and doing this work of digitizing. And, you know, it had this kind of, as he calls it, the Indiana Jones factor of, you know, of high adventure. <laughs> and that's kind of an irresistible mix for a writer like me, you know, high adventure and, and deep spiritual quest. Um, so there was a kind of, I think, naivete that I approached this story with of, you know, I'm going to go and have this amazing trip with Columba and, you know, as I mentioned in the piece, we're, we're going to be hanging out in these dusty mosques of the Sahel, sort of sitting cross-legged on the floor with Sufi scholars and discussing ancient manuscripts. And, you know, I dreamed up this whole vision of how it was going to be. And really, I found myself trapped in a UN camp for a week um, as we were you know, hoping to get out. And as I described in the piece, this whole sort of inner drama I went through of, am I going to go? Am I going to go out with Columba and Sophie on this mission? And uh, and why didn't I go? I think that's part of what I tried to answer in the piece. But I think the short answer is I have family back home. My wife and three kids were depending on me not getting kidnapped 
And I think once I got there, the full gravity of the situation really landed in a way that I hadn't entirely grasped before the trip. So that's, I think, part of the part of the story I tried to tell in the piece was that internal struggle. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, the part where you describe thinking about your son's in the, you know, going forward decades without a father and like what that impi- Im- impact that would have on their lives is very like touching and uh, real. I mean, it's, un- it's, te- it's, it's understandable. And it's like the, the fear is not for yourself, but for your loved ones. Um, but I, do you feel like you could have that kind of idealized notion of it? Not just because of it sounds like terribly romantic, but because of how the news is kind of doesn't really cover that part of the world, perhaps as uh, responsibly as it should. You know, the the fact that, you know, there's there's a sort of general notion that there is something happening, perhaps, in that part of the world, but but American media doesn't really touch it and doesn't actually get, you know, really want to dive into sort of the the deeper issues of like, this is human heritage being lost. And also people are suffering. There's so many different, you know, issues there. And it's just sort of like, I don't know, something something's happening, but it's not being discussed. Yeah, for sure that, you know, that region is not nearly as covered as it should be. And, and so many other regions in the global south like it. I think we do need a lot more stories from those places. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I did know what I was getting into. I've lived four years of my life in other countries, three of which were in Nigeria as a kid, and then a combined year uh, in Ethiopia and uh, South America and Central America. So I, you know, I've traveled enough to know uh, kind of what to expect, but I think this was a whole new level for me of being in a war zone, being in a, a conflict zone. And and as I learned there, the UN, this particular UN mission, MINUSMA, it's called, uh, is the most dangerous UN mission currently in the world in terms of fatalities. So I think all of those details started to add up once I was there uh, in a way that felt really you know, personally pressing. But you know, then again, we were in a camp with, I don't know, 3,000 people in this heavily militarized camp. And um, and as Columbus said, they weren't going to send us out, you know, into any situation in which our lives would be threatened. So it was that kind of, yes, we're protected, but I'm also really feeling the weight of this, this uh, conflict that we're in the midst of. Right. And, you know, the title of your piece is Guardians of Memory, which comes from uh, something you wrote, Columba. And in it, you write that monks and nuns have a, quote, natural role as guardians of memory and sustainers of community. And I'd be curious to know more about these roles and, you know, how historically have monks been guardians of memory in Christian or other faiths? I think it has a couple of elements. One of them that I was thinking about this past weekend was the fact that we tend to settle in a place and stay there for a long time. So European monasteries typically last for centuries until there's a revolution uh, or the Reformation, but then they tend to start over again. And this is certainly true of our community here, which I can illustrate with just a kind of fun little story. 
we have a beautiful lake. Fred has seen it. And on the lake, there's an old stone sort of bathhouse that was built in 1922 by a class of monastic novices. This year is the centenary. So on Saturday afternoon, we had a little celebration, those of us who love the lake, down there. And we, and we did a little sort of rededication and the abbot prayed over it and this kind of thing. But I was reminded as I looked at the stone above the door that said 1922, that when I was a young monk, one of our monks who spent many years as a chaplain at a monastery of women came back to the monastery and pointed at the building and said, I helped build that. He had been in that novitiate class of 1922. As I got to know him, I discovered that as a student here, he had pushed the wheelchair of the last surviving founder of our monastery from 1856. So the point being that my little monastic lifetime, I've been here 42 years, um, I knew somebody who knew somebody who had been one of the first monks to arrive in Minnesota in 1856. And we're, we're young. We're still kind of getting going here after you know that seemingly long span of what, almost 170 years? So when you, when you have that kind of stable community, it becomes natural to you know, conserve lore. So stories about Father Angelo, he's the monk that I was just describing, who died at 106, 85 years in the monastery. Extraordinary. So there's that, but then allied with that is the fact that because monasteries are founded for spiritual reasons, they require having a certain array of resources for the spiritual life. So that means texts, and it means music, and it means development of visual arts that complement the life of prayer and contemplation. And this is why you have monks caricatured as copying manuscripts in the Middle Ages, because we needed books. And our, our sisters in women's monasteries needed books as well, and they too were copyists. And so you had it a sense of a kind of deep past, a sense of the deep roots which were feeding you, you know, at, at the very moment in the present. But those roots are in a culture which was conveyed largely through manuscripts. So this is, you know, one reason I say we're guardians of memory. And then what we're doing today in the work that Hemmel does is, is something the kind of modern version of that recognizing that technology changes, ways of preserving memory change. And what at one time was done with a quill was done by a printing press and then with microfilm and now with digital media. But we're still in the same business because we think that the past has value and that we need to pay attention to the voices of the people who came before us. Absolutely. And, you know, how how has that role of guardian kind of changed in the modern world and you know obviously there's this notion that once you digitize something it exists forever and being familiar with archives i know that's not true <laughs> um so many things can go wrong it could be preserved incorrectly uh so now that many memories are kind of stored digitally and mass how do you feel like that role of the monk as a guardian of the memory has kind of changed I think it's a really important question, and I think it's one that touches all of us. I mean, I, I have a file that has the letters 
that I wrote back and forth to my parents when I was in college. There's no such thing now. So I have a, a physical, tangible artifact which shows all the stuff that preoccupied me as an undergraduate, much of which had to do with needing more money. But there's still something wonderful about touching something that I know they touched and words that we exchanged with each other. So the question of preservation of current memory, I think is a vital one. And there certainly are you know, projects that are trying to uh, do things like capture websites and I suppose archiving social media and, and that kind of thing. So there, there is that dimension. I think it's a challenge that we face in the monastery as well because we are part of the modern world. And we're all aware that our attention spans and our ways of processing information have changed from the days when we'd have to walk across the church green to go to the library to look something up instead of simply doing it from a, a mobile device or a laptop computer and checking it on Wikipedia or wherever else people go for information today. So I think this makes the work that Himmel does all the more important because these manuscripts that we preserve, which actually are not just medieval. I mean, we have manuscripts here that were written in the late 1990s in parts of the world that simply didn't have printed copies of these texts. So they're showing what even almost current intellectual culture was like in some of these locations. I think it makes preserving those voices all the more important because the fear is that people will stop paying attention to the past because they're so consumed with the deluge of information in the present. And, you know, anybody who spends five minutes on Twitter knows what that's like. And it's addictive and it's fascinating. And it's also ephemeral. Could I add one thing to that? Yes. I think there's a parallel here with, in the piece I mentioned, uh, Columba practicing a kind of monastic diplomacy and I think because he and he's representing this tradition that is seen as a guardian of memory, as a preserver of cultural and religious texts as part of their ethos, I think that presents uh, a unique opportunity that's allowed him to do this work uh, and, and to get into so many places that that a sort of diplomat or someone working for a business or any other kind of representative of a human community would not be able to do. And so Columba, I'd love to hear you just kind of riff on that idea a little bit. I, I sort of glanced on that in the piece of what monastic diplomacy looks like, but I'd love to hear your thoughts of sort of how as a monk, you've been able to build trust among people in very disparate parts of the world, very different religious traditions from your own. Um, and, and how that's sort of opened doors for you in a way. Well, imagine, if you will, an American guy knocking on the door of a monastery or a mosque somewhere in the Middle East or in Africa and saying, hey, you have any manuscripts here? I'd love to have a look and maybe I'll take some pictures of them. Is that cool? I mean, how's that, how's that going to go, right? So the fact that I represent an American organization, but do so as a monk actually makes a big difference because uh, somebody who is a monk, whether I'm wearing my habit 
as I as I might when I'm in a Christian area or just wearing, you know, some sort of nondescript, vaguely darkish shirt as I would when I'm dealing with Muslim communities. That's kind of the personification of not-for-profit. So it sort of helps allay the fear that the foreigner is coming to take your stuff or somehow to take commercial advantage of it because these communities are well well aware of and very familiar with the way that the foreigners come and take their things and put them in museums and libraries in the West and they don't get any kind of benefit from it. So the monastic thing really helps with that. And then I think there is also a recognition by some of these partners we work with, well, I would say all the partners and most of the people we meet with, that I do represent a tradition that's deeper than the American political reality or country, that I do have a kind of fundamental spiritual and religious orientation, which is more akin to that of the traditional cultures that these people represent. So there's a kind of you know, affinity, even if we don't share the same explicit faith, we share, you know, kind of a fundamental spiritual orientation. And then the other part of it is uh, I have to go in with the right attitude. So it's not enough just to, you know, be wearing a black robe or to say that you're a Benedictine monk or to say, hey, I believe in God. You guys believe in God. That's great. Let's work together. Uh, You have to go in with the right sort of attitude. And I think this is something that monastic prayers help me with because I can be calm and receptive. And the little mantra I use when I meet with new partners, particularly those I haven't met yet, is I have to go in there and I have to be three things. I have to be humble, meaning I have to show them that I deeply respect their culture and I'm not coming with any kind of presumption or air of superiority. I have to be transparent so that there is no sense on their part that I have a hidden agenda. And then thirdly, I have to be kind because kindness is not necessarily what some of these places and peoples associate with people from the West. And that formula has has served me pretty well. And I think it, it has served me well because it's it's authentic. That really is how I approach these things. And have you ever failed to establish that trust or have you had a difficult time sort of being like, hey, you know, we're not just going to steal your <laughs> these precious stacks, put them in a museum because we don't trust you? Because I mean, I mean, that's kind of one of the underlying things of, you know, places like the British Museum that have not repatriated things that were stolen from all over the world. There's this idea that, well, they are better preserved here than they would be in Turkey, in Nigeria, wherever. So how do you, I mean, have you lost an artifact or a manuscript, you know, while trying to balance those three roles? There's certainly places which have either said no or it's obvious it's not going to go anywhere. And sometimes it's a it's suspicion about are we really trustworthy? So it's not being able to overcome that sort of reflexive suspicion of the foreigner, uh, the American, whatever. Uh, in other cases, it was internal politics of the place where some were pro, some were anti, and the leader who might have been a little more open, a little more aware of the importance of this kind of work 
simply was unable to prevail in internal discussions of it. So we've chalked up, uh, you know, certainly failures, some of which continue to sadden me because some of them are in places which have had real problems and where manuscripts may be at risk. So, um, yeah, it's, it's mixed. Overall, we've been successful because overall we've been able to find people who are influencers in these communities who really understand the reality of their own communities, which in many places are very endangered by all kinds of things, and also have gotten to know us well enough to understand that we would be a trustworthy partner. And I mean, what what motivates you to preserve important texts from religions other than your own? I mean, do you because you you mentioned obviously you're a man of God speaking to other men of God who are trying to protect things that are really important to their religion. But I mean, do you see your work as part of sort of like the history of humanity or how do you view that, that aspect of your work? I certainly do consider the manuscript tradition and the life of uh, Islamic communities to be part of the broad story of human beings. And therefore, uh, another manifestation of the human perpetual search for wisdom. And therefore, it has value. And as a Benedictine monk and as a Catholic, I believe that. That's that's what we believe. I also have come to understand, uh, particularly in places like the Middle East and Ethiopia, where Christians and Muslims live side by side, that if you're trying to understand, say, the way that uh, Christians have thought about issues and try to understand what they chose to write about in their manuscripts, you can't do that in isolation from the people that they lived with. And so the, the first places that we started working with Muslim communities was in Ethiopia and Jerusalem, because these people, they've known each other forever. Uh, they've sometimes argued, they've gone to each other's weddings, they've exchanged ideas, manuscripts contain um, sort of recorded episodes of that dialogue or argument. And so how can you claim to be preserving the intellectual culture of a place without trying to do it in the fullest manner possible, which means everybody's voice, whether it's Christian or not. And then the work in, in Mali, which is a Muslim country, there's some Catholics there, but not very many, a handful of other Christians. Why would we work there? I think it's that, that broader human understanding of the search for wisdom and the awareness that even out there in West Africa, we have found texts and stories which originate in Middle Eastern Christian texts, which have gone back and forth and they've been Islamicized. And in some cases, Christians baptize a story which has an origin and, you know, some kind of Islamic tradition. And tracking that kind of long distance exchange, as well as the reality of uh, multi-religious communities that live in the same place together is really fascinating. And what's that going to tell us about the pre-modern world? What's that going to tell us about intellectual exchange and the, a far richer and more complex understanding of what these communities actually were? So that's that's why. And Fred, you're not a monk, but uh, you know you're you're a Christian writer. Getting back to this this question of ephemerality and sort of capturing the reality of life in a particular time. You know, you've you've written about you know food and faith, and uh, you, you say you feel like more of an essayist than a 
journalist, but the struggle that you undergo in this piece, weighing sort of like rethinking your own relationship to religion. How do you feel like that reflects perhaps something about our own time or do you feel like something broader? Well, in terms of their storytelling, there's a line that I love by the writer Barry Lopez, who was a mentor of mine and a writer who I read for years and years and finally got to meet in the last couple of years of his life. And Barry had a line in one of his stories, something to the effect of, sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive. And I think stories are how we care for each other. That's part of our, again, this is part of the cultural memory is passing down stories. And I think the story I'd inherited of Christianity in the West and the Christianity I grew up with, kind of uh, sort of broad amalgamation of Protestantism, it sort of sampled all the offerings from the Protestant smorgasbord growing up and, and, and found it wanting and found it to be, as I described in the piece, a, a tepid bathwater of American Christianity. And I did. Yeah, that was brutal. I love that. <laughs> my, my piece that I did for Harper's before this one was even more uh, accosting of American Protestantism. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's kind of a lover's quarrel too. It's like, you know, I, I consider myself a Christian and so I feel fully, fully free to, uh, to criticize that, which I love. Um, but I, you know, I found that the faith that I grew up with was pretty tepid. It was pretty, um, pretty lacking in, in any kind of demands on me, um, other than a kind of assent to a set of moral codes or, you know, assent to a set of beliefs. And as I say in the piece, like, you know, real religious belief is not just a mental cognitive ascent it's a way of life and i think that's one of the things that has long attracted me to christian monasticism is the rigor and the the practice and the discipline of it and i think that's part of what i wanted to experience you know following colombo is sort of seeing his own practices and how he lives those out in his work away from the monastery and you know in our in our movement through Mali, you know, I would sometimes look across the deck in the morning on, you know, especially in our hotel and along the Niger River in Bamako, and I would see him praying and having his morning practice. And I think that kind of um, that daily discipline is something that has become really important to me in my own life. And, uh, and I see my own faith much less as, uh, again, much less as a set of beliefs, and more as a way a way of life that I'm trying to live and mostly failing at, but still trying. Uh, and there's, you know, a wonderful line in Christian monasticism of something like, you know, a monk's work is falling and getting up again, falling and getting up again, falling and getting up again. So there's just the, the lifelong process of salvation, I think is uh, that understanding of the faith is really attractive to me. Absolutely. And, you know, you, Fred, you write that, you know, the, the first word and the rule of St. Benedict is delivered with a command, obsculta, which means listen. And Columba, you said in a recent lecture that the discipline of listening is now an endangered art. And it would be interesting to hear you elaborate on that. Like what, what is putting that in danger and, and how does that listening, the, the, the disappearance of listening, uh, endanger 
or make more urgent or preservation work? Listening takes time and it also takes effort. And as we deal with the reality of decaying attention spans with the deluge of modern media and information, and as we deal with this addiction to sound bites, it's becoming more and more evident that for so many people, their human transmitter can send, but it can't receive. And so finding ways to cultivate the ability to take the time and to commit to the attention to listen is becoming harder and harder and harder. And this is one of the reasons I'm grateful I am a monk and live in a monastery, because we are forced a few times a day to go sit in that church and listen to each other, chant the Psalms, read the scriptures. And we have a lot of silence built into even our common prayer, not just our individual prayer, which forces us to sit there without a device in our hand. That is increasingly rare in this world. And so it's important to call attention to it because how can you ever get to the point of understanding another person, being able to see the world from their point of view, unless you can actually sit down and listen to them. And I would extend listening beyond even just the interpersonal to the vaster scope of listening to the cosmos. Because listening is something we do with our ears, but I think, frankly, it's something we also do with our eyes in the contemplative gaze that we talk about. Christianity likes visual metaphors for contemplation because there's something about the visual encounter with creative reality, which is enormously powerful for people. And it saddens me when I'm out in nature and I see so many people walking around in a beautiful environment with headphones on. It's like, take it off. <laughs> because you're not, you're, you're not able to really see unless you can also hear. And nature also has its own voices that are speaking. And they're part of the package. So I think it's a, it's a problem that has many dimensions and obviously is very much connected to the political reality in our own country, the geopolitical reality that we're seeing today. So the ramifications are, are vast. Absolutely. And I mean, Fred, it would be great to hear you. We keep sort of going back to this uh, question of listening. I mean, and that also influences things like political polarization, which uh, in these places that sort of erupt into conflict and again, motivated by a combination of tribal, religious, post-colonial sort of hangover, things happening, stoking these conflicts, which are exacerbated by things like social media. I went to Ethiopia in November of 2019, and it was absolutely everywhere. People talking about these self-proclaimed community leaders on Facebook, talking about like, oh, well, this tribe committed this atrocity against our ethnic group. Like, it's 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 really bad. <laughs> it's make, and obviously what's happened in Ethiopia since uh, November 2019 speaks to that. So what do you feel like a layperson again, who is kind of being pulled in different directions by political polarization in America or anywhere else. Like, how do we regain our bearings and kind of relearn to listen and to to see and to really fully be present? 
Yeah, well, I love what Kalimna just said a moment ago, that the human transmitter can send, but it can't receive. You know, for so many people, that's that's kind of their operating system now is clicking send on emails and Twitter and, and all the rest. But how much are they actually opening themselves to receptivity? Very little. And I think for me, I can only speak, you know, in my own life, I think the the monastic spiritual practice of contemplative prayer uh, has been huge and just, you know, sitting for 20 minutes each day uh, in receptivity is huge for me. And, you know, I, every morning I go up on a little deck facing East, um, the sun comes up over the Bridger mountains and there I am sitting on my Zafu and Zabaton and outwardly it, it looks like doing Zen, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a Christian prayer practice with, uh, a Christian mantra, the Jesus prayer. And this has been something that Christians in the monastic tradition have done since Columbus can say, but really what the third century, fourth century. I mean, this is, this is a very ancient way of praying. And this comes back to what I was saying earlier of my dissatisfaction with American Protestantism is so much of it is about talking and it's about cognitive activity and contemplative prayer is all about slowing and, and, you know, even stopping cognitive activity for increasingly longer moments of your life to where you're not sort of leaping on to the next thing you want to say or do. You're, you're slowing time and you're allowing God to work on you and sort of open you up and break down all of your egoic defenses that you've so carefully crafted, you know, over the course of your life. And I think that aspect of slowing time is really important within Christian monasticism and um, and opening yourself to the other. And in Christian prayer, it's opening yourself to God, but then that spills over ideally into other areas of your life where you're you're more receptive to views different than your own, where you're more receptive to people radically different culturally than yourself. So I think that listening is a practice. It's not just a way of... Uh, of uh, it's not just a, a neat thing to say. I think it's like something you actually have to do and cultivate. Columbia, do you want to add to that at all or not? I mean, again, I, again, the the political polarization is of again uh, definitely relevant to your to your work and your work. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's it's hard to say anything other than it's bad <laughs> a lot of the time. Yeah. It's, uh... It's so bad. Um, so the the power of listening is manifold, and oftentimes it works best even in silence. So uh, I'll give you an example from one of my experiences of interreligious dialogue. So for a few years, I was involved with what we call monastic interreligious dialogue, which is when a bunch of Buddhist monks and nuns get together with a bunch of Catholic monks and nuns, and we talk about issues of common concern. But because monks and nuns pray, we have the challenge of, well, how are we going to pray together? Because we have such radically different understandings of God, no God, meditation, and so on. So what we would do is we would just sit in silence for 30 minutes, sometimes 60 minutes, in dead silence with each other. It's extraordinary what happens in terms of building a relationship with somebody without saying a word, without even looking at them, by sharing 
sharing the common silence. So I think part of our political polarization today is the fact that there aren't opportunities to build relationships that don't tip over immediately into confrontation and disagreement. So what's what's the neutral space? Because anything today, it seems, can become politicized and therefore polarized. So as a society, finding forms of encounter and engagement that foster listening is, is not an easy thing to imagine. And I don't have a simple recipe for it, except to suggest that everybody go off to monasteries and do a retreat. That's unlikely to happen. So we're going to gonna need more monasteries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we always need more monasteries. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, Could oh, I riff please on go ahead. I was thinking of a line from the great civil rights leader and contemplative theologian, Howard Thurman, who, uh, who said, we do not yet know each other because we have not yet been silent together. And I love that idea that we can't really know each other until we've been in silence together. And hearing Columba describe that scene of interreligious dialogue, I think is beautiful. And I, I do think we need more times of communal silence because it does tend to break down your outer defenses that we've so carefully crafted. Uh, how we go about doing that, I, I don't know. Could you guys work on that, Violet? Can you sort of come up with some brilliant plan over there at Harper's. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm right. I'm putting it on my to-do list. <laughs> I'll send out a, uh, a all yeah. staff email uh, after, There's a lot after of we get off. So. I think you guys can figure it out. <laughs> yes. Just us. <laughs> no, no other, no other news magazine, no yeah. other news outlet. It'll be just us. Um, so I guess Fred, you know, you, Again, Fred, you're, you're so much of the piece is kind of describing and, you know, a little bit, a little bit of evisceration of sort of like faith and what prayer is like for you. And, you know, and did this trip and your discussions with Columba affect that at all? Like how you actually pray? And I mean, specifically, I'm interested in what you wrote about not getting mired in the past, because I think any sort of people who attempt mindfulness it's so easy to go to uh, maybe a not great place or think about the past or think about things that are impossible to change when you're trying to create this quiet or pray or be mindful for yourself. Well, as I described in the piece, I went on a sort of journey in memory, you know, as Columbo was out having his, mm -hmm. his high adventure in Gao, I was sort of mulling on my Nigerian childhood as a missionary kid. And that whole week, I had really been feeling this feeling of kind of being trapped in this UN camp. The camp had these uh, gabion walls, these Hesco bastion walls, giant bags filled with sand, topped with razor wire, and we couldn't leave. We were sort of within this uh, this base, very much under the, the biddings of the UN security forces that were protecting us. And, and it reminded me so much of what I experienced as a kid in Nigeria. And so as I described in the piece, I spent three years from age 10 to 12 in a missionary compound in Jos, uh, a good way south of where we were in Gao and Mali. And, and I lived essentially within a walled compound. It was a, an adobe walled fortress with uh, broken glass shards embedded on the top. And and as I reflected 
you know, it was it was built to keep out the local populace to protect we missionary kids from anyone who might try to enter the compound. And it occurred to me that um, that you know, as I said in a in an earlier draft of the piece, the missing piece of my West African childhood was West Africa. And I lived out most of those three years within this little walled compound and was bused to our school a mile away, to, which was another walled compound. And very little of my experience was out sort of mingling with, with Nigerian kids my age. It was this kind of sequestered life. And I think that early on inculcated a kind of predisposition toward interior prayer, toward uh, artistic life, uh, sort of the inner life, uh, because I was so kind of sequestered. But I think as I reflected in the piece, you know, it's taken me a good bit of therapy and, and prayer practice to really overcome those memories from my childhood, those memories of abandonment and, uh, and sort of living out this life that I didn't choose for myself, uh, but was chosen for me. And I quoted this guy, uh, Evagrius in the piece, who was one of the early uh, progenitors of contemplative prayer and Christian monasticism. And, um, and Evagrius talks a lot about not hanging on to certain memories, which can kind of become these little brain worms. That was the, the early monastic term he used, brain worm. No, I'm totally kidding. Uh, <laughs> wait, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> no, he... And then someone, someone, the person who said it on Twitter actually read that. And they were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Good just kind of inventing history here as we speak. It's, uh, that's what we journalists do. We write the first draft. <laughs> no, um, that's right. <laughs> no, he, he talked about, um, I, I don't have it right at hand, but just the idea of of not sort of, dwelling on painful memories, lest they become obstacles to prayer. And I think, as I wrote in the piece that it had been, I realized I'd been hanging on to these, kind of nursing these wounds, you know, nursing these painful memories against the Calvinists who were holding me captive in that missionary compound, um, and against my own parents who were off doing the Lord's work as I was trapped in this missionary kid's life. Um, so I think, you know, the contemplative prayer, just to summarize or to, to end this little um, diatribe, it's like contemplative prayer is all about release. It's about letting go. It's about allowing God to do that work within you rather than fortifying your own little inner fortresses against the mean old world out there. Uh, and I think that was part of what I experienced on this trip was the uh, sort of cracking of my own internal walls. Uh, and being more vulnerable, being more receptive. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, in that way, it was a gift. Yeah, I mean, uh, if I were a psychoanalyst, uh, I would say that your your lived experience, your childhood is actually a very powerful metaphor for modern life, but also for exactly what you just said, this, this um, you know, feeling helpless, being confined, be, you know, literally the, the outside world cannot get in and sort of trying to find a way out of that and trying to find a way to think and sort of process the world without that, um, that barrier 
obviously we've been talking about spiritual matters, but think of material things for a second. Just so many people with, you know, through technology, through economic conditions, through the pandemic, it seems like we've, we've all kind of experienced a version of that though. Again, I'm not going to try and uh, discount your experience to say it's the exact same thing, but. No, no, I think you're exactly right. We've, we've all come through a kind of period of isolation and entrapment. Um, and I think that was very much top of mind as I wrote, even though I didn't sort of name the pandemic directly. I, I'm glad you picked up on that because I think we've all been grappling with being trapped uh, these past couple of years. And how do we how do we deal with that? How do we face that? Do we want to talk a little bit about digital technology or should we leave it? I think the the fun thing to note is that Benedictines have always been early adopters of technology. And I think this is a surprise to a lot of people that, you know, clocks in the Middle Ages, hey, we have a clock. We don't have to have somebody stay up all night until it's time to ring the bell to wake everybody else up. Or printing press, like, hey, you mean we can make like 500 of these all at once instead of writing them out by hand? And so the microfilm stuff that we did in the 60s was the same deal. Here's this modern, as it was then, way of preserving ancient manuscripts and the move to the digital has been the same for us. So we're both very traditional in terms of our deep roots and our spiritual practices and our long tradition. But with those deep roots, we're able to sort of engage with modernity, with all of its joys and sorrows, as the Second Vatican Council says, and then to embrace technology. And then we hope to use it constructively. And that, of course, is the great challenge with technology. You can kill somebody with it, or you can care for somebody with it, depending on how you engineer it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think of how the family that you were visiting in Gao, how they were kind of afraid that the digitization would end, you know, people sort of, it should be noted that the first kind of form of tourism was religious pilgrimages, right? You would go to, try to go to Jerusalem, maybe have some Knights Templar shake you down, help you. Depends, it depends on which religion you were. And the, the family was afraid that this would mean less people actually coming to see this physical object if it was digitized. And part of your struggle was kind of convincing them that that's not necessarily going to happen. And that this, you know, and you can be involved in this documentation and you can participate in it and, you know, help make it more accessible for everyone and like that's such a enormous task and i mean do you feel like the the texts that you have digitized like uh do they end up on more sort of like publicly available things or do they go to libraries or like or is it sort of a case-by-case thing because it's you know the obviously the internet it's it's endless it's boundless uh but where where do where do most of these uh texts that you rescue end up so we're very careful about how we use the images that our projects capture. So the people who own the manuscripts or people they trust, they're the ones who take the pictures. They allow us to put them online on our platform with good solid cataloging and clear description of who owns it and where it is and all of that kind of thing. And so that's part of establishing the trust with the partners is that they trust us to use the images appropriately. But the other part of it is we promise them that 
no matter what happens to the original manuscript, which we hope will survive forever, of course, that the images will be curated and archived over the long term. And as a sort of self-sustaining organization, which has at least enough endowment to keep the lights on, if not enough endowment to do all the stuff that we do, we really can make that commitment to them. So it's the sort of Benedictine version of that seed bank in Norway, you know, where you sort of stash copies of this stuff and you make sure it's going to be there when we need it over the long haul. And then meanwhile, we're sharing it online. So it's a, it's a great mix of the traditional Benedictine archival impulse and leveraging modern technology for good. And what we find with digital images, and we put them online in our reading room and hope people will check that out because we have lots of cool stuff on there, is that it doesn't make people less inclined to try to spend time with the actual manuscript. It makes them more excited to do so. So it's not a replacement. It's a complement to the original. Now, the reality, of course, is uh, nobody's going to be going to Gao or Timbuktu for the foreseeable future. So the only way to even learn about these cultures and to learn about what they thought was important to write in their manuscripts is to look at the stuff online. And we have discovered in our work that many of the users of our website are people who are in those places. So they're in Bamako or they're in Addis Ababa or they're in the West Bank in Palestine. And they used to go to a library in the old city of Jerusalem. They're not allowed to go to anymore because of the separation barrier. So how did they look at the manuscript that's, say, you know, a mile from them physically that they can never get to? They look at it on our website. So this is uh, a really sort of, you know, amazing array of things that are coming out of this simple phenomenon of making the material available. And we hope that it'll also help change people's perspective on these cultures and realize what a lively intellectual culture there was in these places that they had no idea had such a rich literary life. But that's going to be long-term fruit. We're doing our work now in the hope that it really will start to have an impact over the long haul. Could I add to that? So polite of you to always ask. <laughs> one, uh, one question. <laughs> Please. <laughs> One, one question that uh, that I think may come up in the minds of some readers, and I think I addressed this in the piece, uh, but I just want to make sure this comes through, is this this is not cultural appropriation. You know, and, and this was a question I was asked. I was at a writing conference last week in Asheville. I was teaching creative nonfiction, and I gave a short reading from this piece and was talking about kind of literary journalism and doing my shtick, you know, and, and a question came up, uh, well, what about cultural appropriation? You know, isn't this kind of borderline? And, and I was just like, no. And, and I think this was one thing that really impressed me early on as I was kind of interviewing Columba. And then this really came through on our trip. You know, he spends, uh, I think, a lot of time developing those relationships of trust uh, with partners on the ground. And and making sure this is something people actually want rather than something that's being somehow foisted on them. Um, and I think that's the transparency part of, of Hemmel's work is really making sure that 
the people who own these manuscripts want to have them digitized. It's not something that is kind of a parachute operation, you know, coming in to, to take some images. It's um, it's work that's done by people there on the ground, and you know, Hemel raises the funds to fund local people to digitize the work so that the manuscripts are not taken out of the country. So I think that's a, a really important uh, piece to emphasize. Anything you want to add on that, Columba? Just if you, in terms of charges, you know, people charging you with cultural appropriation. Yeah, I think that that says it well. The key point is the manuscripts stay with the communities that have treasured them for centuries and often sacrificed and suffered to keep them safe. And what we do with them is not try to make their story somehow our story or read ourselves into the manuscripts. Our goal is simply to present what's in them. So in our social media, for example, in our publications, lifting up the stories that are found in them so that a broader audience can hear these people speaking in their own voice. And those are voices that are often not heard in the West. And the fact that so many of the people who use our online reading room are from those cultures says that we are helping them do things that for whatever reasons, economic, political, you name it, they can't do right now. But we're doing it as something that they can use and people in the West can use. I think is modeling a, a particular approach to cultural heritage protection and preservation. And the key point is there is now insurance should something happen to the manuscript itself, which we pray God will never happen. But sadly, sometimes it does. No, I mean, I think um, you could have a probably very nihilistic view of uh, history and think that, you know, the West really never got over the Crusades in a certain respect. And you can see this, you know, this hostility within and, you know, sort of directed outward towards places that are not the West. And this project shows that interfaith collaborations like this, you know, that they can be meaningful to humanity itself. And again, even probably transcending, if you're not even a believer, you can probably find the incredible value of keeping these documents, preserving them and making them publicly available. So I don't know. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for, thank you for. You're welcome. Yes. Uh. <laughs> and I, 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 yeah, I, again, I, I wasn't, I mean, obviously Fred, I was not there to hear the charge of cultural appropriation, but I find it strange. Yeah. It wasn't a charge. Yeah. So much as it was just, I think certain liberal white audiences are sort of, yeah. it's a knee jerk reaction, right? Anytime anyone of, sort of white European ancestry goes and does anything in a different country, there's like a little sort of cultural appropriation antenna get perked up and, oh, that must be cultural appropriation. <laughs> well, again, not a wrong impulse. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty of reason to think that, right? There's, there's a long sordid history of that very thing. It's just that uh, I think what Columba and Himmel are doing, it's, it's very much a service. Um, and it's, you know, in service of this larger vision. And it was so beautiful to hear that a lot of the readers uh, of the online documents are from the countries where the manuscript came from. I think that's a really telling detail right there. Thank you both so much. This was really 
Wonderful. Yeah, thank you, Violet. It's been great to talk with both of you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crum, with production assistance by Ian Montagani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.